Hello and welcome to the 152nd episode of the Filmmakers Podcast and the day that the dare is released. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try to F them up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson and I am in LA. I am sat in the garden of my friend Richard Short's house, uh, looking at the ball, enjoying the breeze as it laps through my hair, looking at the beautiful pink flowers and the gorgeous oranges that are on the tree over there. I'm Honestly, this is amazing. I apologize to those who are in the UK right now in the rain, um, but I deserve this. The dare has been a long time coming and that is why I am here in this beautiful surrounding. And thank you to Richard and Teresa for letting me stay here because the release of the dare is today. It has been a long bloody time and I mean bloody in the literal sense. Uh, it has been a real journey. And do you know what? The film might not be for everyone, but it was literally made with blood, sweat and tears um, making it. And I cannot thank everyone who helped me make it uh, all along the way. The producers, the cast, the crew. You know what? You mean the world to me. Um, honestly, you really do. And to all those who held me back or hindered me. I thank you as well for making me stronger and able to believe in myself to make a feature film from just a little idea I had um, in a book that I went to Johnny Grant with and suddenly we're writing it and suddenly it becomes this project. And I say before further ado, we were suddenly making it, it took a long time um, to get it to the stage where we were ready to make it, but make it we did. And after two and a half years of post-production it is finally released in America uh, anyone else around the world you'll have to wait it's coming it's coming very soon but it is released so certain people can see it now and that to me means the world um, we are getting some cracking reviews and it's just it makes me cry sometimes thinking of these just delightful people that like the film you know and it touches them or it it makes them squeamish or it makes them feel something and that's what I wanted that's what we wanted when we set out to make this film and oh my god thank you to all those who've watched the dare so far and those of you who are going to buy the film today if you can get it in America please do it's in North American territories honestly it oh, I cannot tell you how much that would mean to me if you did that um, it is available on Apple on Xbox PlayStation Fandango all those places and links to that are in the show notes um, and I would love it love it love it if you if you like it in any way just to watch it but if you like it do go to IMDb and give us a lovely rating and go on to Apple and review it or go on our Twitter at the dare movie and just say cool I watched your movie if you didn't like it if you liked it just put something nice you know praise the actors because they're amazing or the crew or you know Andy the DOP who's done an amazing job or the writing if you like mine and Johnny's writing whatever it is uh, the dare is released today I cannot hide my excitement I don't care that I'm sat in the sun burning I don't care right now I have a movie out 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We are talking to the really wonderful director, Aleem Hossein, um, about making a sci-fi feature film on a micro-budget with no-name cast, winning awards, including the London Sci-Fi Film Festival, and getting a great release, uh, how to work in sci-fi and VFX, and the importance of having great collaborators around you. Aleem's movie, After We Leave... The brilliant, brilliant sci-fi movie, award-winning, is available now. So do go check out After We Leave, after you've listened to this week's episode. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director, producer, and uh, I am delighted to say The Dare is released. I've said it again. I don't care. I'll keep saying it. Um, I'll keep saying it. For anyone who's ever made a film, you'll know what I mean right now. The feeling of actually getting a film released and out there for people to see is also hugely daunting and absolutely frightening absolutely frightening but you have to ignore the, the people who don't like it the, the reviews that come out like that you have to ignore them because not everyone's going to like your film and this one especially you know it's it's gory it, it's 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 full on um it's been lacking to soar you know it's that vibe if you like that vibe brilliant if you don't you'll like it anyway because it has themes of everything i'll shut up about the dare now because <laughs> next week's episode is with francis Anan, who is the director of the brand new daniel radcliffe starring escape from pretoria you've probably seen the trailers and the posters all around that is released this friday you can get to hear from the director of how he made that film for his debut movie starring daniel radcliffe uh next week a Serial Killer's Guide to Life is available now as well. The film I produced, uh, that is available around the world. You can get that now. Do please support. Um, Rain Dance, we're giving you, if you're a film crew member uh, and you like sound, editing or lighting, practical effects or DSLR work, the Technical Foundations course is starting in a couple of days' time on March the 5th. And they have five courses that can be booked individually about all those subjects dslr work the power of sound power of editing uh power of lighting and the power of practical effects and you can get 20 percent off uh the podcast code is podcast 2020 so go when you're paying just put podcast 2020 and you get 20 percent off so filmmakers out there get involved dare is released by the way in case i hadn't told you the dare is out today <laughs> oh my gosh uh onwards and upwards right uh, I am off to meet um, some producers and managers while I'm here this week. Wish me luck. Wish me all the luck in the world with the release. And if you do watch it and if you do support me and if you've been listening to these podcasts for free, then please do. Well, what do you mean for free? They are free. And if we've given you any advice along the way that, that you have liked, uh, please do support. Even if you can't afford to buy the film, just go on our Twitter, follow us there or our Instagram at The Dare Movie and just follow us, like us, like our stuff, uh, retweet us that's the most important thing okay um my intro has gone on far too long but i'm too excited uh, i should probably jump in the pool it's way too cold but i should <laughs> just, just i need a cold shower um, right here is this week's fantastic podcast um with aleem hossein that the fantastic robbie mccain has edited and put together while i'm over here in la so thank you robbie here is this week's filmmakers podcast oh and by the way the dare is out don't know if i told you It's my absolute delight to welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast, Aleem Hussain. How you doing, buddy? You well? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. We've been chatting back and forth with your PR company about uh, getting you on this podcast. It's been really nice. In fact, what I really like about PR companies when they're working with filmmakers is they really 
they really can be really good and supportive and they get the filmmakers around and I just wanted to touch on first of all how it is using a PR company for you rather than you know sort of doing it yourself how nice is it that someone else is sort of going well actually I've got this podcast or this interview for you uh, I was just wanting to talk about that because we've never talked about it in the podcast before you know, yeah, I, I'm very new to the process. This is my first feature. And, you know, when I came to the end of finishing it, I realized, you know, artistically, I was very happy with the film and and very, like, sure of, like, you know, the choices I had made. Uh, mm -hmm. But I realized in terms of putting it out into the world, I knew relatively little uh, and honestly was very open to, you know, learning how to get people to see it, how to get people to appreciate it. I think particularly a film like mine, which I, I do think of as, you know, having an audience that is, you know, not the entire world. It's not a four quadrant film, so to speak, mm. you know, it's a, and yeah, so, uh, it's been great because really what it allowed me to do was, uh, sort of practice pitching the film when I was pitching it to various publicists and see their response. And even there I, I was able to find, Oh yeah, this person, they get what I'm doing. Like yeah. they're not, you know, just going to go out and try to like pitch it to like, you know, mainstream, you know, press as like a sci-fi movie to compare to the Avengers or something, you know, and, and yeah. And so it's been sort of actually pretty gratifying and pretty educational to be honest, to sort of go through that process. And then, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, I, I joke that I think a, a publicist is a little bit like a personal trainer. Like she makes me do my push-ups, and I don't like doing the pushups, and <laughs> I feel good afterwards. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, you know, I think that, you know, uh, working with Ginger Lou, like she's really, she's sort of shown me the value of, you know, self-promotion does not have to be crass or feel artificial or feel like it's somehow different than what your movie is. The reason I went with her and the reason I think I've enjoyed working with her is that she's helping me see like, look, no, I see your movie. I see what it is. Let's get it to the people who want to hear about it and talk about it in a way that feels natural. Uh, and so it's been great to have a guide because to be honest, like I don't know how to do all those things. You know, I've been making films for a long time, but in terms of releasing something as a, as a feature, it's, it's a whole new world for me. That's really interesting. Um, a lot of filmmakers out there do do it themselves. And I advocate for that. I'm like, look, if you can do something yourself, go do it. But been doing the podcast and we've got my films coming out and suddenly you're going well hang on there's a real big PR team here and um, some brilliant media people who already have the ins in these places and why not um, so yeah shout out to Ginger Lou at Ginger Media and Entertainment for setting this up first of all but uh, yeah I just wanted to chat about that and how uh, how it was for you but I think it's, it's proven successful and so it's, it's something for filmmakers to consider when they have their film ready I don't think there's any point in doing it before you have a film ready, otherwise you're just sort of publicizing yourself and you might not get many interviews. But if you have a film... No, I agree. Yeah. I think if it's like, if it's a concrete task, you know, a discrete thing you have, um, I think it is worth considering. I mean, to be honest, I hate to say it, but like, I feel like the more I've looked into it, the more I realize, and I don't think this really applies to like a podcast like yours, which I think is, you know, obviously sort of an independent labor of love. Uh, mm. But like, when you look at the mainstream media, so, so little of what you see there just organically happened. You know, yes. in terms of covering of entertainment, like yeah. somebody was advocating and pushing and calling the right person and, you know, knowing the right time to send this EPK, et cetera, et cetera. And at, at first I was sort of like disappointed and even a little like frustrated with that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, I kind of made the decision like, all right, if that's the game, I'm going to play this game because I worked hard to make this film. I want to get it out there. Mm. I think there's two routes, isn't there? There's that one where people say, no, no, just pound it out as much as you can, even way before the release. And then there's mm -hmm. people who say, no, 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 you've got to do this strategically, otherwise people will get bored of seeing the same stuff. And by the time it yeah. comes out, they think, hang on, I saw that 
you know, a year ago, what happened? And it's that weird mindset. In my film, The Dare comes out March the 3rd, and um, my brilliant team, my distributors there, are literally saying, no, no, just chill out now. It's all right, we're going to do the big push leading up to it. So you don't need to do, you know, keep putting the trailer out or keep putting little tidbits out. Just wait, we're, we're going to now slowly start to build. And I think that's great, you know. Um, and they've been around a long time. Uh, they've just set up their new company, The Horror Collective, but they know what they're doing. They know what they're talking mm -hmm. about. So you just take that on board and go, yep, I listen to you. And same here, you know, you need those experienced people around you when you're making a film. Um, speaking of which, obviously with After We Leave, which is your debut feature, but you had some amazing people around you. Um, you know, what a great team. I take it it's your brother he's doing the vfx unless he's just got the same surname as you um, plays. <laughs> That'd be a funny coincidence would it no yeah i mean the story of the entire film is you know the 20 years that i've spent from when i made my first little you know very amateur film to now yeah. assembling and learning who do i love to work with who do i think is amazing and this movie really is the culmination of like me calling in all of those favors relying on all of those friendships and previous collaborations uh and yeah i mean obviously you know one of the most important ones is my brother who 20 years ago when we both sort of headed out to LA he you know had the foresight far far more financially prudent decision than me to say I think that uh, visual effects are going to be pretty big and he self-taught himself this stuff and has wow. worked you know on huge movies you know he's worked with J.J. Abrams uh, uh, and and on just you know won a key art award for a, a trailer for Nolan's Dark Knight like he's done all this stuff and what was great, though, and this is really a through line for a lot of my collaborators, when you're working in Hollywood at this high level, there are things you don't get to do or you only ever get to be so much a part of the conversation. And so, you know, with him and with my cinematographer, Julie Kirkwood, and some of the actors, really what I had to offer was, look, let's make a film where when, you, when it's up on screen there, you'll be able to point to it and be like, that was all me. You know, every mm -hmm. single VFX shot in this movie, he did all of it, you know? He can tell you that, like, you know, on the bridge of the Enterprise in Star Trek II, pretty much all those screens he had a hand in, you know? But that's wow. not the same as being able to say, there's, you know, 80 shots in this movie, that's all me, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And the same thing, you know, even with just the amount of creative freedom you can offer collaborators mm -hmm. on an indie film. Uh, you know, some of my actors, you know, Clay Wilcox and Brian Silverman, you know, they're, they've been on some TV shows, they've done this and that, but they don't get the opportunity to be, you know, main characters with real nuance. And so the nice thing is when you give people that freedom, you get these really talented people and they'll come out and work for cheap or free because their day jobs or other work or what's paying their bills, they just want to flex their wings, flex their muscles, spread their wings. Mm, it's so true. It's really important to find that tribe find your community and find your team and they will stick with you like you say you worked with them on shorts and uh, whatever mm -hmm. else you'd work with them on and you brought them with you um now this feature obviously it was is a it's fantastic feature you've just won best film at the sci-fi london uh you won best director at berlin sci-fi um and it played at other worlds uh, on sunday yeah um how did that were you there at the festival? i was there yes amazing how was it how was the uh, reaction it was wonderful. You know, I, I've really become a fan of smaller festivals. I think when I was starting out, like the only thing I had in my mind were these really big ones. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, you know, like having like compared the experiences of like standing in like the corporate hospitality tent at a large festival versus like, you know, being in a theater. We had like 130 people in the theater in, in Austin and just being there. And then after that, spilling out into the lobby and having, you know, like, 40 or 50 individual audience members had the time to come up and talk to me about the film. 
that is amazing, you know, yes. and it's a sci-fi festival. So they're into the genre. And, and, you know, for me in particular, like my sci-fi film is not a typical sci-fi film. It's not set in space. You know, it's not uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, VFX in the forefront as the main cell of the film. And to see, to interact with genre fans and see them saying, Hey, I see what you did there. You know, like, this is a different take on that. And, and, you know, and honestly, some, you know, people who loved it, people who wanted to debate the ending, people who had some questions, like all that stuff. I really, really love that. See, I totally agree. Um, we, we premiered the dare at popcorn frights and I loved it because you, you're in there with the team. You, you're in there with the yeah. people who love horror and love potentially love your film or hate your film, but it doesn't matter because you're all in there together and you're all having a drink together and it's easily sociable and you're right in the exactly. big, big festivals. It can be a problem because you can get lost. You know, because J.J. Mm -hmm. Abrams is over there or, yep. you know, the Star Wars. And suddenly you're like, oh, we're just this little movie. And they go, oh, yeah, it's lovely. Well done. But yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think I think our, our we were programmed as filmmakers to go get in South by Southwest, get in Sundance, you know, get in the big ones. But actually, the small ones are where it's at that's where you really meet people and meet other filmmakers and you end up working together and collaborating and i think that's huge right for sure for sure you know i got at this little festival in um you know in austin i met this other filmmaker marcel barion who um his film uh, the final land had played alongside mine and a couple other festivals and mm -hmm. you know i met this guy from germany who's made this super small sci-fi movie entirely using miniatures and models and no cgi amazing and here's a guy who i never would have met in another context you know we spent three days together watching movies forming a bond and like i now have you know like a, a compatriot in film you know in germany that i never would have met otherwise so you've you've done really well <laughs> anyway in the festival so far with this film um and you made it on a very very modest budget would you like to tell our listeners how much you made it for Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing I always tell people is that the reason that I, I actually like to talk about the budget uh, is less to sort of, you know, brag about, oh, look what I did for this cost, but more to say, I made this movie. We got we finished production for about fifteen thousand dollars. We did a Kickstarter and spent about another fifteen to sixteen in post. So thirty thousand dollars for the whole movie, and it's you know it's a sci-fi movie set in the future. The mm. reason I like to talk about it is that we are in an era in which sci-fi seems to be solely controlled by you know two hundred million dollar movies, and I think way more people should feel entitled to do sci-fi. You know, I think, you know, when you look at the horror uh, genre, which I know that you work in, John, I was like, yeah. uh, a lot of people feel entitled to make horror movies and they know that horror can be a source of like low budget social commentary or low budget, you know, pushing the edge of like, you know, you know, different extremes. Uh, and I think sci-fi people think about it less when they think about independent filmmaking because of a fear that it's too expensive. And, and like my real message is, look, you can't, you can't beat, you know, Star Wars or the, or the Avengers at their own game, but the cost of VFX, the way you can shoot, if you're smart about it, you can tell speculative sci-fi stories for cheap, which should, I think, make the genre more diverse in terms of not just, and I think, I don't mean to say just, you know, including who's making the movies and who's on screen, but also just artistically, the kinds of stories we can tell. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Simon Cox has made his uh, his film Invasion Planet Earth, uh, and same thing. Is it the same thing as you? Yeah. He's got out there now. It's it's available for people to watch in the UK, and it is about just he just went. Well, do you know what? I'm just going to do this, and it, and it took him a long time, a lot of years, to do it. 
but he did do it. Would you mind telling people the story, and then I'll play the trailer, and uh, we can we can deep dive into it. So After We Leave uh, is a gritty sci-fi drama set in the near future. It's about a guy who has this once-in-a-lifetime chance to emigrate off the planet to like a better life, uh, but he can't leave without his wife, who we walked out on years ago, because it's a couple's visa. And so, yeah, it's really the story of this guy who is returning to Los Angeles. The world is not good. Recession and crime and water rationing. And the question of the film was like, has this guy come back to LA six years after he just left his wife and his life behind? Has he come back because he's changed or only because he has this visa that will allow him, it's like a lottery ticket to a better life. And is he just back because he needs the wife to do that or because he's really changed? This is one night when I, uh... I couldn't get to sleep because anything that was touching me felt like, you know, one of those lead blankets. And I got up and I went outside and the whole night felt that way. Remember those old stories? the guys would go west. They'd just be able to have that land. That's what I want. I want a chance to have something. I mean, uh, you should be inspired by that right now from that trailer. There is a link to that in the show notes, so you can watch it as well. Um, but just search after we leave on YouTube and wherever. Um, and I can't wait for you lot to see this film. So, look, let's let's get back into why. <laughs> Obviously, you you know, you talked about. Look, I just wanted to to make something. And the sci-fi wasn't too far out of my range, but. You'd made quite a few shorts. You'd, um, you know, Hereditary being one, uh, you know, you'd, you'd worked on various other ones and, and you knew lots of people in the industry. Why did you say, I want to go make a feature film? When I got out of film school at UCLA, I had written a couple of scripts and seemingly to me, things caught pretty quickly. Like I had interest in those scripts. Uh, yeah. But what I kept finding was they were just never going to let me direct them. And I went in circles year after year where they would just sort of say, look, this is a great idea. We'll pay you a little bit of money to take the script, but that would be the last of it, really. you know." And because they kept saying, look, you haven't directed a feature. And if you haven't directed a feature, like, why would we take a bet on you? Know, it was this vicious cycle of, we won't give you a feature until you've directed a feature. Yeah. And basically, you know, about eight years ago, I reached my breaking point on that <laughs> and yeah. decided, you know what, I've, I've made shorts, I've made some web series. I'm just going to make my own feature. And so that was one motivation. But honestly, I think the thing that really drove me to do it was a deep desire to work differently than I had been working. I made a web series right before this film. Uh, and I distinctly remember the first day on set. I showed up to this web series, Central Division, and I, 
I had planned it so well in advance. And on, I showed up at that first moment and I said, oh, I feel so calm about today. I know exactly the shots I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's going to be able to cut together and it's going to work. And I did that. That day went that way. And I got home at the end of the day. And I honestly wanted to throw up because I realized, like, I didn't move to L.A. I didn't throw my whole life into chaos to competently execute decent coverage. You know, like that was and I realized I should never feel that calm. Like, I don't I want to show up every day and have butterflies in my stomach. I want to be reaching for something. I want to take a risk. You know, like I do think these days, like the only reason to make an independent film is to make something that wouldn't exist if you weren't in the world, if you weren't the one making it. And so After Leave also was an attempt on my part to invite my collaborators to have greater input to, you know, we bought a DSLR and a few pieces of equipment and broke out of the model where you have to shoot an indie film in a sprint of 8, 10, 12 days because your costs are all per day costs. Instead, we owned our means of production. The crew is usually me, my brilliant DP, Julie Kirkwood, and a couple of actors. And we could go out, you know, 9 a.m. on a or 7 a.m. on a Monday morning, shoot one shot, and then go to our day jobs. Or we could, you know, decide we're going to try to shoot this entire scene at Magic Hour this Saturday. <laughs> oh, we ran, out, we ran out of time. Oh well, we'll try it again Sunday. You know, mm-hmm. like, and and so the the goal overall was for me to find a way of working where, whenever we wanted to, I could give the actors one more take. Uh, you know, I said to Julie, my DP. Uh, if I give you a DSLR and two lenses, but give you all the freedom you want, what do we have to do to make, you know, a beautiful film? Uh, and she was like, look, here are my few constraints, no white wall departments and no shooting between 11 AM and 2 PM because the sun looks terrible then. Um, <laughs> and, and the thing is I would never be able to guarantee no midday shooting on a normal production schedule. Right. And so we did that and it, we did it on nights and weekends over you know, this, you know, I said to, um, you know, even myself, like if there was a moment on set where I suddenly saw, ooh, let's improvise a little bit here or let's let's try shooting this scene in this sort of with a sort of riskier camera uh, angle or approach that might not work or might take us a long time to get right as opposed to just standard shot reverse shot. I want to say, yes, let's go for that as opposed to being under the crunch of like, well, got to make today because those will be behind tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So I better just do a, you know, wide shot, close up, close up and move on after two takes, like, which is sort of, I think what a lot of times that low budget time pressure leads one to do. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I think maybe other filmmakers are better at this naturally. That didn't come naturally to me. I came to film with this idea of like, you know, hyper organizing everything and I wanted to be more free. And what's wonderful for me to be able to say at the end of it is, A, I had butterflies in my stomach every single day of production. Things did go wrong. My collaborators had more input on this movie than I'd ever allowed. But then in the end, the movie is the closest to the one that I saw in my head uh, that I've ever made. Wow. I think think you do have to dig deep and you do have to really think about what you want as a filmmaker um well how did you come up with the story because it's a brilliant story it's a brilliant concept it's like oh it's so simple why don't we think of that that's great where did it where did it come from it comes from two places uh the the first one was one of those just you know i'm sure you've had them too i was like one of those like like flashes of like an idea that you don't even know what it is quite yet. I was, I was stuck in traffic on Wilshire Boulevard in LA in my car. And for whatever reason, I was like waiting for this interminable traffic light. And I just had an image of a guy and I knew he was looking at something and that there was a question. And the question was, has he changed? And I honestly didn't even know what that meant at the time. Mm. Uh, And I ruminated on it and I realized that he was looking at his wife 
And that the question of the movie was, has he changed? And so I knew I wanted to write a movie about uh, this flawed character and the question of how much we can change. And as I sat down to write it, you know, in all honesty, I realized that I was a little, not just a little, I was very <laughs> frustrated and I didn't know it at how many movies tell the story of a deeply flawed man who somehow changes all his flaws and then gets heavily rewarded in the end. And I realized that part of what I wanted to do with the movie, and I wouldn't say I wanted to do this just to make a point, but it's what I just intuitively felt was true about the world. I wanted to make a movie about a flawed guy who is trying and maybe manages to change a little, and we see what one really can get for that in life. So that was one inspiration. And then the second one, in terms of the setting of the world, you know, I'm a mixed race American. My dad is from India and Bangladesh. My mom is a, you know, American and uh, uh, sort of from a, my dad's Muslim. My mom, you know, grew up in a Roman Catholic uh, family before she converted. And, but, you know, growing up mixed race, like I was acutely aware of this one side of my family that had, uh, you know, immigrated to the U.S. Through, by visas and, and the visa quota system and, I've seen like how those kinds of systems have really can warp people's lives when you like, grow up in one of the poorest countries on earth and can maybe get a shot to go to one of the richest. Mm. And I wanted to explore that. And, you know, I get a lot of questions about the relevance of the movie to the current world. And, you know, the irony is I wrote it before things like the, the Trump travel ban or, um, or stuff like that. Uh, but, I, those things were always on my mind, I think, because of my family background. But I wanted to find a way to transpose them to an American context uh, and to sort of get people to really think about like the extremes of human behavior that those kinds of quota systems can create. That is ace. I love that. And it's really interesting, isn't it? How, it, of course, you wrote this. Well, how long ago did you first come up with the idea? <laughs> the idea was like eight years ago. Eight you know? and, yeah. <laughs> before, like you say, the Trump situation before, you know, it's raised its head right now. And yet your film comes out and everyone's like, oh, wow, you hit the right zeitgeist this is it no, like, it's so what? sad like you know when i was writing it towards the end of the obama administration uh mm. people were really say, like literally were saying like really do you really want to imply there's a racial bias in the future of immigration like won't we be past that or um you know california's past its drought do you really want to focus so much on water shortages and and sadly uh, now the phone comes out and people are like uh, you know it's shockingly relevant <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. Um, I think that's sometimes as filmmakers, we, when people say, what's hot right now, um, you know, 10 years ago, whatever, vampires or 20, maybe now, let's write a vampire film quick, let's get it out there. And then by the time three years passes and you've actually managed to finish the film and get it ready to market and sold and all that stuff and for people to see, it's passed. People aren't bothered yeah. by vampires anymore. And my thing is always just write what you like and write what you want to see um, and make what you want to see because, like you say, yours just happened to hit that you know the right spot at the right time because you were inspired by the story and i think that's i think that's what all filmmakers should do um how did you write then how did you sit down and write the concept what's your process when you're screenwriting well once again with this movie i was trying to sort of change my process a little bit so i mm. sat down and wrote i took a note from an interview i'd read um with ryan johnson several years ago about how he writes these long prose almost like short story outlines and so i, I was like you know what i'm gonna try that i sat down and i sort of wrote uh 
about a three or four page, mostly prose, a little bit of like shot and aesthetic description, but mostly just like a long story mm. uh, with some big, pretty big gaps in it. But I always knew the end. I knew what the end of the movie was. Um, and when I started to try to translate into a screenplay, I realized that I didn't want to write all the scenes, that I wanted to leave some space for the actors to improvise, precisely because that used to terrify me. Uh, when I first got to film school, I just wanted the actors to say every word exactly as I said it so I could get to the editing room as quickly as possible. Uh, and now I'm a filmmaker. My favorite part is being on set and making the right decision with the camera and with the actors. Like, I love that moment. And so, yeah, uh, with some of my actors who I'd worked with a long time, I knew they could improv. In fact, I knew they wanted to be able to be a little looser. I I'm not a filmmaker who can work with like complete improvisatory, like it can go anywhere sort of framework. But oftentimes I'd come to set with either a roughly sketched out scene that we would work on set mm -hmm. or even sometimes just a here's a starting point. Here's roughly where we should end up. But the journey in between what's figured out. And sometimes what you're seeing in the movie is literally that improv happening uh, for the first time. And sometimes what happens was we'd improv for like an hour on the morning, the day of the shoot, then we'd pause and I might even literally go write a script right then. Again, another thing you can't do when you're under immense time pressure. Uh, and then we do the sort of a, a best of version from what we'd improv in the morning or something like that. And then sometimes for sure, I just wrote the scene. Uh, and those scenes were ones that just really came to me and I knew they had to be that to make the plot work. Uh, but you know, in the finished film, about it's close to 30 or 40 percent of what you're seeing uh is at least somewhat improvised or you know playing within the outline that i created you see that must have been really freeing right um as a, a filmmaker because i've not made an improvised film it would freak me out i would i'd be like all right okay and do you know what i might be all right i'd be like well let's just see what happens but i'm i, I do like to I, know, I don't know. I like to plan and maybe I will one I day. Mean, I think but. there's a balance, right? Like I do okay. think that if you, I mean, at least for me, like I couldn't imagine just sort of not having any, you know, signposts along the way or not having any major plot markers and being that open. I think that wouldn't really work for me. But yeah, I found that to me, it became an extension of, I think we all know that you give the actor one more take and they can add a few more colors here or there. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like an expansion of that idea. You know, like, oh, look, we get the general idea of the scene, but there's always these moments, you know, actors, the good ones, I think, when they're being trained, they're always being told to, like, really just follow their instinct because they feel something to do it, right? Mm. But sometimes the reason they don't do that is that they know what the next line is supposed to be. You know, and and so I think like I've been sort of trying to experiment with I want to maintain control. I have a vision like I know what I want the movie to say, but how can I get those moments of brilliance? I, you know, I'd like to think some of them and I think they're in the movie. I think I did write some of the good lines mm. or some of the good, good turning points. But to be honest, there are other lines in there that uh, I feel really proud of in the sense that I think they emerged from the work I had done to overall envision the film, but they're for sure, you know, they come from the actors given that room. They did something I didn't expect. Wow. Where do you, where do you put the camera then? Where do you, obviously in your rehearsals, you're, you're, you're sort of thinking about it. And, uh, as yeah. you're talking about where, when do you go, okay, now I feel like the scenes somewhere where I need it to be. And you know, they're going to go a little bit further. How do you know where to put the camera? You know, Julie Kirkwood and I talked about this a lot. I told her that like with almost 
no exception. Like I didn't want there to be marks on the ground. The actors had to hit and this and that. And and she was she did not need to be sold on that. That's her style in general. The, one of the reasons the movie is mostly handheld is to allow for that adjustment. And really, I think you know the the other great partner in the improv scenes alongside Julie, who was usually operating, is whoever was pulling focus that day. Uh-huh. Um, oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> and okay. you know, and you know, th- there's a. a there's a pretty simple scene in the middle of the movie, which is sort of a, a stacked three shot uh, as uh, these two characters, Jack, Eric, and then this sort of henchman Z get ready to do a heist. And mm-hmm. it, I let them improv that scene. And really what's happening is I got a feel for that AC that day, Brett and Julie, they were on board with me. And at a certain point I said, okay, guys, you've seen the scene a couple of times. You just pull, pull focus as you wish. You know, mm-hmm. where do you think the tension is? And we did it three or four times. And so the actors could kind of change their timing. They could vary what they said. And, you know, what's in the movie is, is are those two shots back and forth on that scene? And it wasn't like we had meticulously planned out at each point where the camera would be focused and that sort of stuff. But because, you know, a good, fo- good focus puller, a DP who knows how to adjust the camera so that even the adjustment can be in the movie um, and actors, you know, that you trust it, it works out. And like you say, that I absolutely agree with you. If you have a great team around you, it can really help. What happens if you don't? <laughs> because there's a lot of filmmakers out there are going, I'm inspired by this. You went and made yeah. a, a feature film for 30K. Yeah. It's a sci-fi. I'm going to go do this. Well, 15K in the first place to make it. Yeah. How do I get my crew? Because it's, they're not easy to find. Um, yeah. Especially the good ones. The good focus pullers are going, well, I'm charging quite a bit, mate. So good luck. No, and I think, I think that what you have to sort of start asking yourself is like, even overall aesthetic ideas for a movie are choices about both budget or the talent that you can get, right? Mm. Like, and so I think in the same way that I think I would definitely encourage filmmakers to look, if you don't yet know an actor who can burst into tears conceivably, don't write a scene that requires an actor to burst into tears, right? Like, okay. and yeah. in the same way, I would say, look, uh, if, um, if you don't yet know that DP and focus puller who can, with available light, you know, in a, in a dark basement, craft a beautiful shot that you can pull focus on seven times in, you know, about a minute, if you don't know that, well, let's think about some other options. You know, if you look at the films of Wes Anderson, that, you know, there is not a director out there, he'd say, is, has a more noticeable aesthetic, but so many of those flat shots uh, are very easy to execute in terms of the camera. If you compose a shot where the action is in the same plane from the focus, you, you know, across the frame, and the camera is not moving, you can create amazing visuals mm-hmm. that don't require a complicated camera move, that don't require massive focus pulling, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I always think, yeah, like there, there usually are, and you can still have, so you don't have to abandon aesthetics, but I think, yeah, you're, you're right. The thing, I think the point you're making is you have to be strategic about your aesthetic ideas. Yes, yeah, you do. That's that's it's so interesting. Uh, I, I, it's fascinating talking to you about you know improvised film and uh, and how you you made this. Um, okay, so you, you you mentioned earlier you did a Kickstarter for the original fifteen k. Um, so at this point, what did you have in place? Uh, did you have your cast? Did you have your your, your wonderful DP Julie Kirkwood? Um, did you have obviously you had your brother? I imagine doing VFX so you could put that yeah, on mean, your Kickstarter as a sort of hey. The, sto- Look at the us. story actually is the opposite. What, what really is the case is that we, we actually finished shooting. So I pulled together the initial 15K um, to shoot the movie. And then we had, uh, you know, I, a rough cut 
um, that I could sort of pull some clips from. And so when I went to Kickstarter, it was with this very concrete uh, ask of people. Here is a movie that I have managed to shoot. God, yeah. 90% of the scenes are shot. Uh, and now I need to do VFX, color correction, sound, music, make a DCP, apply to festivals. So in that sense, like it was way easier to ask than I think at the upfront stage. God, um, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I mean, honestly, I found the entire process like I did not, I was not prepared for how emotional a Kickstarter campaign would Isn't be. Isn't it? It's really emotional. <laughs> I did one uh, yeah. earlier this year and we, we eventually, well, we did it literally by, I think, about 30 seconds. We, we <laughs> literally 30 seconds left and we're going to make the, the deadline and we did. But I could not believe how emotional it was. You know, yeah, whether your friends these... put in or yeah. uh, you suddenly got, well, why aren't they putting in? Do they not like me anymore? It's, you feel it's really personal. It's not because we've done it the other way around to our friends as well you just yeah, of course I'm busy i'm doing something else i don't want to <laughs> but i remember like i had like my best when i was in like second grade i had this best friend and i moved from that town i hadn't spoken to him in like 20 years but like or maybe 30 years my best friend from second grade out of the blue just a hundred dollars popped up in the kickstarter from him oh my god and just seeing his name like i literally almost cried mm-hmm. i was like whoa yep what a process this is it's incredible <laughs> the same with us so it was just a couple came in you were like oh oh my god they were really big numbers just from Pete, you were just going oh seriously you did that oh my gosh just totally out of the blue and it's so it's kind of this wonderful thing doing it but it's also like making a feature film it's a full-time job you've really got to be on it (laughs) (laughs) and that's not easy so uh, what did you do what perks did you give this could be quite interesting because it's post now so um you can't go hey come to set you know Um, yeah you know so i um I I sort of took the attitude that, first of all, my assumption was very few of my backers were going to be people that I didn't know. Mm. Um, Like, I just, I didn't think, I didn't have a movie star in the movie. Um, You know, I just, I couldn't see, and it wasn't a movie that was like very earnestly and directly about a political issue. I think the film was very political, but it couldn't be tied to like, oh, this community organization or this nonprofit or, you know, like, I didn't know what the sell was to widen out. And so when I actually set my number and my goal, I was just like, look, I've heard that, you know, you can expect about, you know, of the people you reach out to, maybe maybe if they're if they're friends and family, a third to forty percent of people you reach out to will will respond. Mm-hmm. And the average donation, you know, that just looking at my sort of group, we were guessing was going to be, I don't know, thirty five dollars, something like that. And I just calculated that number, and I was like, okay, that's the number. But knowing that most of them are going to be people I knew, I didn't try to craft these really complex sort of like big gifts to woo people. I was like, look. You can purchase a digital download of the film with a donation, uh, a, a Blu-ray or a DVD. Um, I did some small things just like, you know, if you, just to sound like a, a ringtone or a, a wallpaper. Mm-hmm. And mostly, you know, I, I even sent those out. But I don't think people really, I don't know that those perks what really made people give. Like, because no, the vast not. majority were people that, that knew me, what really was happening was Kickstarter was a way for me to, in one big swoop, make them aware of my project yep. and you know and they could watch that video if they hadn't been in touch with me and my video was very simple it was mostly a direct appeal to camera just saying hey i've been trying for 20 years you know to, to sort of become a filmmaker and i've made a lot of films and this is really the culmination of like this first big phase of my life i'm making my first feature from you know when i was just playing around with cameras till now 
And will you support that? And at the, in the end, I sort of realized people were really just, you know, giving me a vote of support, giving me a sort of boost of morale mm-hmm. uh, because they believed in me. Yeah. And and so, yeah, so I, I didn't do a ton. I, for some, I had a few high backers that I definitely promised, like, look, if you, you know, give above a certain amount, like, I'm going to make sure no matter where you are, you know, come to the premiere, come, you know, get to do this or that. But even those people, it's been interesting, uh, have, you know, literally told me, like, they don't want any of the perks. They're just happy to be given to the film. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's made a real impression on me. Like, it's really made me realize, like, again, we, we talked earlier about the value of small festivals. Like, my relationship with this, you know, I would say relatively small group of toners the donors just a couple hundred people has been so meaningful uh because i know they're invested you know not just with the money like but they gave because they wanted to see it succeed Mm -hmm. and that's the thing they'll stay with you for life um these investors if you treat them right they will follow you your next film and They'll buy this mm-hmm. film, if you like, if they didn't purchase it that time. Well, now you send them a link saying, listen, we, we did it. Here you go. We've won awards. Do you want the film? And by the way, I'm making another one. Um, and this time we're getting even bigger. And do you know what? People support that and they love that because they feel like they're part of your growth. And they yes. are. Um, and interesting what you said there about um, donations. We, how many pledges did we have in total? Uh, we had a lot of pledges in total, but um, I think from this we had 138 pledges mm-hmm. that were donations so they didn't want anything in return yep nothing in return it was just yeah there you go and it's in what you said about all oh, this oh here's a keyring here's a cap it's yeah they just they don't actually want that they just want to yeah. support <laughs> and i think a lot of times you know as filmmakers we're, we're sort of motivated to offer those things uh, out of, I think, a hope that we're going to sort of totally cold convert a true stranger. And I think the truth is, I don't know if that's going to happen that often, you know, unless you have a real breakout thing that really captures, you know, the, the public attention. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's better to think about the movie that you, you can make is... And it may be very small, super small budget, but like, you know, how big is your network? Even if your network is only 25, 30 people, well, then there you go. What Calculate that out. Like, that's the, those are the people you're mostly going to reach with a Kickstarter, I think, these days. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, we've found that there was a few, because ours was very um, towards uh, animal rights and veganism and that side. Ah, there so, you go. So we yeah. had a hook. We had an outside hook that wasn't just our friends and wasn't us going, hey, we're making a film. So that helped massively. Um, and I, I think you see that with documentaries. Like, there are definitely documentaries I see that achieve majority, quote unquote, stranger donations because people are invested in the topic and they see how pointed it is addressing the topic that kind of thing yeah exactly and that's why as is it's a vegan documentary so it's uh yeah we we tick those boxes perfectly it's fascinating i find the whole sort of crowdfunding market amazing i've done it a few times now and um i've i looked at all the stories of people who are successful and people who weren't and why they weren't and it's just yeah you've got to be on it you've got to know who your audience is and you've got to really target every week who you're going to go for and oh it was a full-time job yeah, every time is, that i did that it's <laughs> horrible so you managed to do that but so in that case i'll jump back a little bit you put your own money in to your yeah. film so 15 grand's quite a lot of money you know in terms of it is especially when I, yeah. working filmmaker it's like oh gosh it's uh, a lot and really what that what that money represents is um uh, a few, a little bit of that is an amount of money that my lead actor Brian Silverman put in, and you know he said this wonderful mm-hmm. thing to me when we were a couple of, you know, about a month or two into the, the movie. You know, we shot sort of on nights and weekends, and he said, you know, in a given year as an actor, I spend a certain dollar amount on acting classes. 
Uh, I do it because I enjoy them. I like practicing my craft. He's like, but honestly, shooting this nights and weekends is way better than my acting classes. And so, so yeah. basically, he gave me he gave me his annual budget for his acting classes. See, you know, and, it, that and is so <laughs> true. The filmmakers out there, I say, actors out there, who want to act and be in a film. Well, there's your perfect example. Find a filmmaker and go. Listen, it's going to cost me, you know, this much over the year. It might only be a couple of grand, but hey, yeah. you can go certainly make a good short for that. Now you're on camera with a great DP, great team, and suddenly there's a great bit of material to start peddling around socials and giving it to your agent and directors online. And yeah, that can get you work. Whereas being on these courses, as much as they're great, can not get you work you know you're with a bunch of actors uh so yeah i, I think that's great and i think that's really supportive and he obviously believed in you um and believe what you could make and to be honest yeah th- and i think anyone who heard your story would go yep yeah i'm in this sounds <laughs> great had you done sci-fi before and i know that you've done vr yeah. uh so do you want to tell us your sort of journey into going all right i'm gonna yeah. do quite a lot of vfx in this film I've been a science fiction fan my entire life. Uh, you know, just as, as soon as I was reading, I was already reading, you know, uh, the great sci-fi authors of sort of that golden age, um, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, Asimov and Octavia Butler and, and, and Heinlein and, and then, and on up from there, I sort of discovered these authors in my local library and, and just devoured them. And I was watching Star Trek and, uh, and Star Wars, obviously, and the through line in my work really has been, I think, uh, the use of genre uh, to tell stories. I, I love sci-fi and I love cop movies and I love, uh, you know, these sort of like the use of genre, not to like pedantically make some sort of point, but like the way that like you can use a genre like science fiction to sort of talk about your own life, your own experiences or what you think about the world around you, mm. but through this new lens in a way that like allows for like some really creative aesthetic choices that sometimes I think helps the medicine go down, you know, with mm-hmm. a little bit of sugar. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah. And so th- this was my first uh, sci-fi film. I'd written several sci-fi scripts um, and, you know, I, I played around and shot a lot of, you know, little experiments or just, you know, half-baked ideas just when I was just in my free time. Uh, and really, though, the whole time I was sort of watching the development in visual effects um, and watching what my brother was doing and realizing, you know, all the lessons of indie cinema that have happened over the last 10, 20 years of like how how we can shoot digitally and if you're smart how you can sort of you know really do things much cheaper they apply to like visual effects as well and then also honestly i was thinking about science fiction uh in terms of how monolithic the storytelling has become you know i I actually even like some of the marvel movies and some of the star wars movies but the truth is they're all now at this point they're big action films just with varying degrees of comedy like that is almost like the entire spectrum of mainstream speculative storytelling. And so, mm-hmm. and then I was super inspired by watching movies like Primer or Another Earth. Uh, and, you know, I mean, even mm-hmm. a, a big movie like Ch- Children of Men, where you think like, wow, like now here are some people who are going out and they know this genre can do so many things. Uh, and that really was like what I wanted to do, like make my sort of modest little contribution to that broadening uh of the genre amazing that's really interesting um yeah i've written a couple of sci-fis as well but i think i was always like oh they need much bigger budget and it's what you talked about before is 
you can't get a film made until you've made a film especially when you're asking for a decent amount of money to make a sci-fi people were like well we like you and your project but you're not doing this you know uh, give it to us and we'll we'll run with it and see what happens but we didn't want to give it away and then in the end nothing happened and and, and the truth is you know like I, I i can go back and look at one of my early brainstorming notebooks you know years ago and I, there's this page that has like four or five ideas on it and the one i've circled is the one that became after we leave but the truth is three of them i ruled out i brainstormed them i liked them and i couldn't make them cheaply you know so, so the, mm-hmm. the answer obviously is not that all of them could be cheap right and no uh and and so yeah it was again a sort of i didn't want to start from the budget and so for me i just brainstormed five six ideas that i really liked and then applied the lens of practicality to them. I have trouble starting from the constraints too much. Like I'd rather brainstorm 10 things and then figure out what's the one I can do. Mm. Um, for me, at least process-wise, I can't just start from the constraints, but obviously you have to very much take them into account or it'll never get made. <laughs> I wanted to touch on your locations because obviously you're shooting in LA and oh, I was kind of like, that's great, wonderful and whether LA had locked down on you sort of with a budget that you had <laughs> not to letting you sh- shoot in certain places and you know and I imagine you were quite a small team but we're very small when you're shooting you with it? a DS yeah I mean we were a very small crew we were shooting with a DSLR very rarely did we have lights or even a reflector board we were mostly just you know I think Julie uh, as a DP and like the fact that my actors were really willing to try these things we weren't afraid to just go into a public area and start shooting this is the worst that was going to happen is we were going to be told to leave and in some shoots that'd be a disaster because you're like oh my god that was the only four hours we had to shoot that scene and now we're behind schedule and we didn't get the scene but for us uh, that was fine and the truth is we were small we weren't bothering anybody and uh, you know LA is, has so many cool locations you see about the same five over and over again in most movies mm. uh, and you know I spent an immense amount of time driving around the city both Brian my actor and Julie we had a running text thread where we would just if we were just going someplace you know Brian was dropping his kid off at soccer practice or football practice and saw a building and was like, texted a photo and was like, that one, that's going to be the departure point, you know, or Mm. Julie would be doing another job, shooting a commercial and she'd look over across the street from where they were shooting and see an alley and say, Ooh, that one, that can be in the movie. Uh, And, you know, I did a lot of scouting on Google maps, literally just on street view, (laughs) moving around LA looking for places. Cause I knew that, you know, it's a huge city. And there are these places that without any visual effects could stand in for the sort of like recessionary, crime-ridden, water-rationed like future that I wanted to create. Uh, and it wouldn't require a ton of money. We could just go there, try to shoot it. And uh, in most cases, we very rarely got bothered. Uh, you know, a handful of times we had, uh, maybe only two or three times, we had the police roll up and say, hey, do you have a permit? Uh, no, okay, move along. And that was about it. Um, Mm. In one instance, we got hassled by a security guard only to realize he was just concerned for our own safety in the sort of dilapidated neighborhood we were working in, not caring that we were filming, but more like telling us maybe we should for our own benefit move along. Um, And other than that, we had almost no problems. That's so good. I think I think it is also about you know you're being nice you're not turning up with a big old crew making a big old noise uh going you know shooting guns throwing blood around you're going yes this is uh, you know we're we're mild-mannered we're making a really cool little indie movie and actually if you knock on a couple of doors nearby or if someone's been a bit funny about you go talk to them and actually 
yeah you'll find they're all right even in london sometimes just look the gone are the days with the big budgets and you know you know we yeah. can do all this and it's off you if you're filming in the center then yeah someone's yeah. going to come <laughs> over and say no but again you shoot with it don't put a tripod down to say you're doing the yeah. student film you can get away with it you know you, you really can um, and the benefit there is too is, you know you get a movie like i mean that's your production design right like just the idea of there are so many indie films that are shot and I, I really do get why so i don't mean this is a criticism but like so many indie films that are shot you know in one apartment Yes. You know, uh, and, and there is obviously a whole tradition of like the enclosed space feature. I think there's some great ones. Uh, but, you know, one of the ways I wanted to break out of that model again was, no, I, I, I live in this global metropolis. It can be part of a sci fi movie. I want it to be on camera. Let's just try it. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think I think you've just got to be brave, haven't you, as filmmakers? Um, what did you what did you learn from? making this feature film then what you know yeah. what what stopped you five years ago what do you wish you could have told yourself now and gone, <laughs> what, what, what was it the, the first thing is something that i would not go back and tell myself which is how long it took i think in my mind i thought oh we'll shoot on nights and weekends for about you know maybe six months maybe eight months mm. and what ended up happening was we actually shot on nights and weekends for several years wow uh, really and, over and, years yeah. wow yeah for about for, for almost four years and and the reason that happened was partially you know the collaborators that i chosen we were all sort of hitting these like really beginning like of the blowing up of like their careers and so you know julie went off and shot a nicole kidman movie you know destroyer and mm -hmm. my brother my brother worked on a huge tentpole movie you know and so i would lose them from time to time but i'm actually i'm glad i didn't know that like to be honest like if i had known how long it would take and how much work it would be i might have been more scared and so i'm glad that i was a little bit naive but really the wonderful thing about this movie was by doing it over time it's the only project that I've ever worked on where I was able to apply the things I learned from the project to that product itself. Huh. Yeah, uh, and yeah. so I, I became a better director. You know, I, as, when you are directing incrementally, you have time to reflect on mm -hmm. what did I say today? And was that next take better? You know, did I get what I want? Yes. And I could pause a couple of days and think about it. And then when I went back to shoot another scene, I was better. Mm. You know, and, and so were the actors and so were the crew. Uh, and I definitely learned the biggest lesson I learned for sure was, oh, look, I ostensibly took my hands off a little bit more and gave people more freedom. But in the end, I think because I was clear on like what the movie was about and why I was dying to make it, they did this wonderful work, some of which I never would have predicted. But in the end, they gave me the movie that I was dying to make. Amazing. It's it's really incredible. It's obviously made for thirty grand. It's it's going to be out there in the world very soon. Um, do you have? Are you allowed to say the? Uh, yeah. The distribution now. No, I'm super super happy to report that again. Speaking of the value of small festivals, you know, I won these awards at Sci-Fi London and Berlin Sci-Fi, mm -hmm. uh, and screened at other worlds. And you know, the nice thing is that attention made a difference. Uh, and so yeah, I I, I sold the film. Uh, Gravitas has has acquired it and will be distributing it. And the most exciting thing. Uh, uh, largely on the strength of honestly 
the beginnings of what is now a good critical response. We got an amazing review from Film Threat. Yes, um, nine out of ten. Movies, amazing. So <laughs> the good. movie's going to come out uh, theatrically in New York and LA on oh. February twenty February twenty first, and then it, I signed a. I, we have a, we'll have a global streaming deal. We we haven't we can't announce yet what that will be on, but it'll be available around the world, uh, basically at the end of February, going into March. Um, and I'm so excited again, just because you know, look, you make a movie because you're compelled to make it, but at the end of the day like you want people to see it and it's been very gratifying to see that little by little just like grinding away i do think it's finally gonna reach an audience i love this story this is so good i, I really I, I love hearing these these success stories of people who went do you know what i'm just gonna go make something and then four years later you're talking on a podcast and you're saying we've just got distribution with gravitas we're gonna be in theaters february the 21st that is you should be so proud and i'm very proud of you uh i i think it's incredible and i love that and that's why i set up this podcast you know it's like inspire people and tell people they can go do it too and here's you doing exactly that and not only that you've made an amazing film at the same time so thank you i really appreciate it and, and i'm like you like i i i draw my inspiration from these things like podcasts like yours you know i remember reading you know the early no film school posts about shooting with a DSLR mm. and listening to these podcasts and like they are what empowered me to do that, you know? And, and so I'm just so excited to be like, wow, like I can talk about a film that I made because of other people who talked about stuff like this, you know, and it's, mm. it is a good feeling. And I feel, I feel very happy and I'm so proud of like all the faith that all these collaborators placed in me. I feel like I, you know, I'm making good on that, and it's it's a very nice feeling. Well done, man. Well done. So, what's next uh, now? You, I mean, not necessarily on the success of this film, because I imagine you've been working on the next film for a little while anyway. Um, but can you tell us what's next? Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm in the middle of writing another feature, uh, mm-hmm. and it's also going to be a genre piece. I think it, it, at this point, it feels like it's going to be almost like a genre anthology piece, instead of multiple storyline piece. Uh, that my plan is to make as a as an indie feature again just because I've really enjoyed the creative freedom and I sort of made a determination with my feature work that unless an opportunity comes along to get like a significantly greater budget uh, the the creative control that I get to have when I work at this small budget is really like something I really prize. You know, mm-hmm. you, you could double or triple the budget of the film I just made, and it would just mean I was paying people a little better, which I do want to do, but it wouldn't actually change a lot of what was on screen. Yeah, I understand uh, that. But as soon as you even take that much money, you do give up a little bit of control in some way, shape, or form, you know? And so I think with the, I'm going to keep making these small little indie features, but I am taking out in January a, a sort of a TV pitch um, to some of the American places uh, to sort of try to get that going, which is also a, a sort of genre story. Uh, and and sort of trying to sort of yeah sort of take a crack at can can I bring the sort of indie writer director auteur idea to a sort of limited series in America? Yeah, uh, that's I can't wait to hear more about that. It sounds super exciting. I know, like you said, you you learn every time on when you're shooting um, after we leave. But what are you going to bring to the next feature? Are you going to still do improvise? You're going to uh, do it differently? What what is one thing that you would do differently now? I watch the film now and I think, okay, I do see that I took more risks than I did last time. Uh, but now as I watch it, and you know this yourself, I'm sure too, as a filmmaker, once you, when you keep watching the film, you have to watch it in post, you have to yeah, watch no, it in You screenings. constantly watch it with the music, you with the score, seeing, with the sound design. Oh my, oh my God. God, it doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, you do start seeing like, oh, like I should have 
pushed more there. And mm. my big takeaway is I love the results I got from taking a few more risks. And I think for my next film, I would like even more of it to have you know non-standard coverage i would like even more of it to be a little bit elliptical in terms of its storytelling uh i I, i'm just curious to know like can i go even farther like you know this is an art form that i believe in i do think it is an art and you know if indie films are never going to make millions of dollars what they can do is contribute to an artistic conversation and i feel really inspired to push even further in that direction I love it. I love it. Alim Hussain, thank you so much uh, for joining us and inspiring, I imagine, loads of filmmakers listening right now. Um, where can people follow you on the socials so they can get in touch and congratulate you after seeing your film after February the 21st? Uh, where can they follow you? Thank you. You can go to afterweleave.com and there you can find you know my social media and my actors. And I also do a, a sort of email newsletter about independent sci-fi and diversity and genre film that you can sign up for there as well. But afterweleave.com, that'll look at you to everything else. Perfect. Are you on the Twitter? Are you on the Instagram? I am. I'm on Twitter at Aleem, A-L-E-E-M. And on Instagram, it's my full name, A-L-E-E-M. H-O-S-S-A-I-N there you go uh, Magic link to the website will be in the show notes and link to the trailer will be in the show notes as well you can look at that and do uh, hope you've been inspired today being prepared is everything you can make it in your film but know who your audience is just like Alim did and get out there and do it and remember if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well it is your duty to send that elevator back down after we leave is out february the 21st the next show will be out tuesday as always we will see you then um if you like this podcast do subscribe do tell your friends that's how we grow uh, and get bigger um which doesn't matter if we do or not but tell your friends because uh they need to hear aleem's story if nothing else aleem again thank you so much for your time thank you so much it was a great conversation pleasure buddy and you lot listening We'll see you next Tuesday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.